Greetings. You're listening to Blue Stocking, the podcast for people who love to learn, but don't always have time to study. I'm your host, Rory Roberts, and I'd like to thank you for joining me today. This podcast has been on a bit of a wild ride the last few years, and if you're new and if you're a new listener, you may be curious about the giant gap in episodes that is the year 2020. There's more information about that in my last episode, but there's something I didn't cover there that needs to be addressed. As awful and heartbreaking as 2020 was, there was also a lot of personal growth. I've been extremely lucky to lead a very privileged, very sheltered life, but last year was a much-needed wake-up call. I have a bad habit of checking Amazon Kindle most mornings to see what kinds of books might be on sale that day, which is how I came across Me and White Supremacy by Layla F. Saad not long after the murder of Breonna Taylor became national news. Most of the reviews on Amazon were five stars, so I was curious when I saw there were a few one-star reviews as well. What cemented for me that I needed to work through this book was the fact that some of the dissatisfied reviewers were offended by the idea that they might be racist, even though they're nice people. I saw myself in those folks and reminded myself of a catchy song from one of my favorite musicals, Avenue Q. Basically, we're all a little racist, whether we like to admit it or not. If I can, I'll link to a performance of it in the show notes, but be warned, even though this show contains puppets, it is not meant for children. Make sure there aren't any little ones around if you play it. And this is where I'm going to make an embarrassing confession in the interest of honesty and growth. I totally had planned on working through Me and White Supremacy as episodes of Blue Stocking. I changed my mind pretty quickly once I heard from the author about white women, specifically influencers, posting all of her work online where their followers were then getting an incomplete version and also not supporting the original creator. That was pretty sobering, and although that had not been my intent, one very important lesson that we all need to learn is that intent is not the same as impact. This is what I'm going to do instead. I urge you to purchase or borrow this meaningful book for yourself, even and perhaps especially if you think of yourself as a good person so you couldn't possibly get anything out of it. I assure you, if you come to this work with an open mind and an open heart, you will get something out of it. It may not feel rewarding, but you will, at the very least, grow. I'll be linking to Saad's work in the show notes. She also has the Good Ancestor podcast, which is well worth a listen. As I record this episode on June 1st, 2021, I keep thinking about the awakening that has been taking place for many in this country over the past year. It's long overdue and nowhere near as expansive as it needs to be in order to balance the scales, but it's making some folks nervous. I also am reminded of a conversation had with a dear friend recently. We were discussing various show recommendations and the HBO series Lovecraft Country came up. For anyone wondering, Lovecraft Country takes the monsters of H.P. Lovecraft's works and plops them down in 1950s Jim Crow America in opposition of the series' black protagonists, who also face horrors like racist cops and sundown towns. Now, we're talking about a sci-fi show where there are beasties aplenty, but the real monsters are of the everyday variety. 
And this friend, someone who is intellectually curious, big-hearted, and committed to anti-racist work, seriously, one of the smartest, most loving, and open-minded people I know, confessed to me that they hadn't realized before that sundown towns were a real thing, or that the 1921 Tulsa race massacre had actually happened. Up until a few years ago, I wasn't fully aware of these things either. Here's the thing. I went to a good school, objectively. Like, we were a national blue ribbon school, which was quite a big deal at the time. I had really good teachers, but it was also in a small town in Texas. And Texas, much as I love my home state, Texas can be problematic. Not long after I graduated and moved away from my hometown, one of my favorite high school teachers got into a flame war via the letters to the editor section of the local newspaper. Someone had written in with their opinion that we should not celebrate Martin Luther King Jr. Day because he was a communist. She let that person have the history and civics lesson they so sorely needed, but if that were to happen today, I'm curious about the outcome. You see, in Texas... Up until fairly recently, the State Board of Education had the power to dictate to textbook companies what they could publish in their texts. There's a great documentary about it from PBS called The Revisionaries, which I'll link in the show notes, because Texas has had such a large number of students compared to other states, and adoption of and adoption of a textbook meant millions of units being sold in the state, and because textbook companies had to match 100% of the Texas essential knowledge and skills laid out by the board, this small group of people had a huge impact on what was being taught not only in Texas, but across the country. Because textbook publishers weren't going to go to the trouble of writing more than one textbook, they'd sell whatever satisfied the highest bidders, states with, with large student populations like Texas and California, to the rest of the country as well. This was illustrated in an article by Dr. Margaret Krakow for Michigan State University. She says, History standards periodically cause political controversy. English language arts and mathematics standards also provoke their own controversies, but for somewhat different reasons than history. All standards are related to a vision of the curriculum that should be created from the standards. As such, both standards and curriculum are normative statements about what knowledge is of most worth. The judgment about this matter rests on a set of values, assumptions, and desired ends, and the means to achieve those ends that inevitably provoke disagreement should this be a skills-oriented or content-oriented curriculum. Should the curriculum focus on the classics or on modern relevant texts and ideas? Should the curriculum be culturally relevant or universalistic? These are just a few of the long-standing debates that all curricular change seems to engender. History standards cause controversy for a number of distinctive reasons. They speak directly to our shared sense about our past, its meaning, and our national identity, and in schools, this process of socialization is intimately related to the citizenship mission of public education. Some citizens wish to promote a narrative about our history that emphasizes our exceptionalism. 
that is, the notion that the United States is better than other nations, it purportedly provides a beacon of hope for other nations, is more moral than other nations, and so on. The narrative of exceptionalism has persisted since the establishment of democracy and the nation-state in the 18th century. Our origin story, if you will, at the founding of this country was all about defining ourselves in opposition to the corrupt European old-world systems of aristocracy and monarchy. The United States represented the New World Order, a city on a hill that would be a beacon for fledgling democracies worldwide. In exceptionalist narratives, the problems of racism, sexism, and discrimination tend to be downplayed if not overlooked entirely. The emphasis is on all that is good about America. However, in the last 40 years, much historiography coming from professional historians has emphasized the nation's shortcomings, if you will, how the country has fallen short of its ideals. College teaching and textbooks, monographs, and research articles have moved towards a far less unified, more multi-perspectival approach to teaching history. Thus, the stories of the American past have been fractured to get away from a unitary narrative implying that every American citizen had the same story and has the same experiences. We now know much more about women's experiences, the history of slavery, Native Americans, Latinos, gays, and lesbians, to name a few, and it's often not a pretty picture supporting the exceptionalist self-image. If you look online at the debates around the AP American History Framework, you see many of these same tensions being played out. In sum, the history standards are the story of us, as one textbook author Joy Hakim puts it. We are conflicted, in a sense, about who we are and what our history adds up to. Thus, these competing perspectives make the history standards exceedingly sensitive and controversial. In the old days of textbook production, the state of Texas and its state board of education had inordinate influence over the way textbooks were produced. Texas used to adopt textbooks on a statewide basis, providing a list of a set of approved textbooks for school districts. Because Texas is such a big state with such a big population, it was a large market for textbook producers, buying roughly 48 million textbooks every year, a hugely profitable enterprise for publishers. Publishers wanted their books to be approved in Texas because it meant their sales would be stronger nationwide. As one National Education Association article points out, publishers are more accustomed nowadays to producing customized textbooks for different states. As a result of changes in textbook production, the influence of Texas has diminished. Despite recent changes that have allowed for customization of textbooks and diminishing influence for Texas, every few years over the last 30 to 40 years, articles have appeared about Texas's influence and battles within the Texas State Board of Education over various topics and their meaning for the rest of the country. In prior years, they have been about issues like creationism, capitalism, and globalization. Fortunately, those textbook requirements have changed, but Texas and other state governments are working to address the education of a whole new generation of students. Recently, a controversial bill was introduced in the Texas legislature that would regulate how teachers address current events and our country's racist past. 
House Bill 3979 says teachers cannot be compelled to discuss current events, and if they do, they must give deference to both sides. As in, if my students had questions about the insurrection of January 6, 2021, I'd have to provide an impartial account of what happened, showing both sides in an unbiased light. Here's more from Kate McGee of the Texas Tribune. The Senate version, which was substituted into the House's version of the bill, included a new civics education training program for teachers, which must be created by the State Board of Education and was estimated to cost $15 million annually starting in 2023. It also prohibited students from getting credit or extra credit for participating in civic activities that include political activism or lobbying elected officials on a particular issue. It also banned the teaching of the New York Times 1619 Project, a reporting endeavor that examines U.S. history from the date when enslaved people first arrived on American soil, marking that as the country's foundational date. Representative James Tallarico, a Democrat from Round Rock, issued a point of order, raising a procedural violation on Friday in the House, arguing the new language from the Senate was not relevant. His point of order was sustained, appearing to block the bill in the final days of the legislature. Tallarico and Representative Steve Toth, a Republican from the Woodlands, sparred on the floor over amendments to the Senate stripped from the bill that would require students to learn about and read historical writings of women and people of color throughout history. Tallarico was especially angry his amendment that required schools to teach white supremacy is morally wrong was also removed. Is it fair to say that any bill that strikes language condemning racism is a racist bill? Tallarico asked Toth. Education advocates said they're pleased the bill was stalled but aren't celebrating yet. While the likelihood of this bill passing is now very low, it is important to make sure that harmful provisions in HB 3979 are not added to other bills that may pass, said the Texas Legislative Education Equ Equity Coalition in a statement. We urge everyone to remain vigilant and continue to let legislators know how detrimental the provisions in HB 3979 would be to Texas students and teachers. Advocates said they are watching the Senate Bill 1776 in particular, which creates an elective course that studies the United States founding documents. That bill has passed both chambers and has been assigned to conference committee where lawmakers are negotiating the final version. Supporters of the bill, which mirrors legislation making its way through state legislators all across the country, argue they are trying to combat personal biases bleeding into public education, pointing to a few individual instances in school districts across the state where parents have raised concerns. But teachers say those issues are few and far between and should be addressed on the local level rather than by state lawmakers. Educators lambasted the bill, saying it would create a chilling effect on classroom discussions about difficult but necessary topics of race and injustice. They criticized GOP lawmakers for interfering in the classroom to gain political points. We know full well at this time in our history that this bill is politically motivated, said Round Rock High School teacher Sheila Mehta, who views this bill as a pushback against efforts among history teachers like herself to include more perspectives and historical accounts in history lessons. 
if I look at the words of the bill, I feel like it's almost like I don't have to change anything. I just can't be compelled to do this. Whereas the spirit of the bill, I know that there's a lot of legislators who want me to stop doing what I'm doing. Teachers said they don't feel trusted as professionals to have these nuanced conversations with students, which they often have and are able to keep their personal opinions to themselves. Throughout legislative debates over the bill, GOP lawmakers have expressed concerns that teachers are unfairly blaming white people for historical wrongs and distorting the Founding Fathers' accomplishments. In recent years, there have been calls for more transparency about historical figures' racist beliefs or connections to slavery. Okay, but here's a hot take. And I feel like I'm allowed to say this as a white person and an educator and as someone who cares about the future of our country. White people are to blame for a lot of shit that's gone down in our past. Anyone who's been paying attention could tell you this if they're really honest with themselves. And the only way we're going to get better is to confront it head on and work to be better. Now, if you're still in a state of disbelief, hang in here with me. I'm going to give you the Cliff's Notes version of a prime example, the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921, which today is the 100-year anniversary of. Here it is straight from the Rediscovering Black History blog, courtesy of the National Archives, in a post by Bob Nowatsky. The Tulsa Race Massacre of May 31st through June 1st, 1921, was one of the deadliest attacks on an African-American community in U.S. history. It happened during, the once, during one of the worst periods of racially motivated violence against Black Americans, the years immediately following the end of World War I in 1918. Before the massacre, Tulsa's Greenwood District, nicknamed the Black Wall Street, was the home of many successful Black-owned businesses, as well as a prosperous African-American residential neighborhood. As often happened during this period, black success was punished by violence from whites in the form of murder, arson, and other destructive acts targeting African Americans. Also typical of this period of racial violence was that a false allegation of a black man sexually assaulting a white woman was used as a pretext for white-on-black racial terrorism. The event that sparked the violence on May 31st was an ambiguous encounter on the day before in the elevator of the Drexel building between Dick Rowland, a 19-year-old black boot black, and Sarah Page, a 17-year-old white woman, who operated the elevator. A rumor soon began circulating that Rowland had assaulted Page in the elevator. Rowland was taken into custody in the Tulsa City Jail and later the Tulsa County Courthouse Jail. The local newspaper, the Tulsa Tribune, fanned the flames of racial animosity by printing an editorial that warned of a lynching. A white mob formed outside of the jail where Roland was held, and a group of about 50 armed black men performed to prevent a lynching. These men went down to the courthouse to offer their support to the sheriff, but were turned down. One report stated that a member of the white mob confronted one of the black men and a shot was fired. This shot was immediately followed by a barrage of gunfire between the two armed groups. The violence escalated as the white mob killed many African-American residents, forced others out of their homes, and burned many of the business buildings, churches, and homes in the Greenwood District. The entire commercial district of Greenwood was destroyed. 
African-American survivors whose homes were destroyed either fled to another community or lived in tent villages outside the Greenwood District. According to a report by the Oklahoma Commission to study the Tulsa race riot of 1921, several eyewitnesses reported seeing airplanes flying over the Greenwood District and that shots were fired on black people from some planes. Other eyewitnesses claim that explosives or inflammables were dropped from the air. Although not all historians agree on the actual number of deaths and property damage, the report by the Oklahoma Commission estimated the death toll of African Americans to be as high as 300 and damage to 191 black-owned businesses' properties in Greenwood at around $1.5 million, the equivalent of about $22 million in 2021. Personal property losses in Greenwood, including over 1,000 homes that were burned to the ground, were estimated at about $750,000, or about $11 million in 2021. In addition, in December 1921, the American National Red Cross's Disaster Relief Report estimated that approximately 10,000 people became homeless as a result of the massacre. No victims were compensated for their losses, and no one who participated in this massacre was charged. The near-total erasure of this horrific event from historical narratives covering this period reveals how politically motivated historical accounts can be. For most of the past 100 years, the massacre was not mentioned in historical textbooks and no copy of the inflammatory Tulsa Tribune editorial, To Lynch Negro Tonight, has survived. Although the survivors of this massacre have remembered the event all too well, their numbers have inevitably been reduced by the passage of time. In May 2018, on the 97th anniversary of the Tulsa Massacre, the John Hope Franklin Reconciliation Park was dedicated. This park, which was built in the Greenwood District, is named after the famous African-American historian who grew up in Tulsa and whose father, Buck Colbert Franklin was a respected lawyer who represented the victims of the massacre. Fortunately, there are records in the National Archives as well as other resources that can help us keep the memory of this event and its survivors al alive. And I will include a link to those resources as well as others to help you better understand the context here in the show notes. I think it's important to note that Greenwood, also known as Black Wall Street, was one of the most prosperous communities in the, in the country before this domestic terrorist attack. Not just one of the most prosperous Black communities, one of the most prosperous overall. It managed to become so because its Black residents, in large part because of segregation, became self-sufficient within their community with schools, stores, doctors, and lawyers' offices, and the like, all within its borders. These days, even a century after this travesty, the community is still not to the standard it enjoyed before. As mentioned in a recent episode of NPR's Code Switch, which I'll of course link in the show notes, residents of the area have a life expectancy that is 11 years shorter than those on the other side of the tracks, and they have only recently opened a full grocery store. This community is still feeling the effects of the racial violence of a century ago, as are countless BIPOC communities across our nation that I can't even begin to address in a single podcast episode. When I first started floating the idea of starting a podcast to family and friends four and a half, 
five years ago, one of the most common responses was a question. What about your job? As in, what if the content that you produce is deemed questionable by someone in the community and they complain to the school and you lose your job? Luckily, I'm in a district that cares deeply for the for the diverse community it serves and is working towards equity, but I worry for other teachers in this current climate who want to instill anti-racism ideals in their classrooms. If you are a teacher questioning how to address some of these issues, or you have youngsters in your life that you'd like to open up a discussion with about how we can move toward a more equitable society, I encourage you to check out these individuals and resources, which I'll also link in the show notes. For educational purposes, I highly recommend the Zen Education Project and the Learning for Justice program. Layla F. Saad's book, Me and White Supremacy, is still at the top of my list as far as self-examination and tools to work towards being a better ally for the BIPOC community. Podcasts I'd recommend include her Good Ancestor podcast, NPR's Code Switch, the 1619 Project, which all the haters need to just listen to with an open mind because it is beautifully produced and so eye-opening, and Nice White Parents. Some amazing women doing anti-racism work to follow on social media are Rachel Cargill and Allie Henney. I also really enjoy Heather Cox Richardson for her contextualizing of current events in our nation's history. She is a history professor that I learned about this year. In the meantime, open your eyes, open your mind and heart and see what you can learn. Our world is so much larger than we have imagined. Now it's time to make it healthier as well. To channel my favorite fictional octogenarian author, Duchess Goldblatt, once more, the light is here, whether we can see it or not. Thank you for listening.